Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about medicine and agriculture with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do with technology for people and the planet. I'm Kevin Folda, and today we're talking to someone who's been around for a while in the area of plant breeding. We go to, I think, Oregon State University. And Dr. Maxine Thompson, are you in Oregon still? Uh, Well, I'm retired. (laughs) <laughs> Oregon State University. But you're Oregon State University. Or you were at Oregon State University for uh, yes. how, how many years? Oh, let's say I came here in 65 and I retired in 86. So 65, so quite a, quite a long time in a, uh, at university, Oregon State University. Yes. But, but where did you do your original training? Was that in... Uh, was it UC uni- Davis. In, and uh, UC Davis. At, and did you train... And UC Berkeley. And Berkeley, okay, and yeah. uh, and so you trained. It was in um, uh, in plant breeding. Well, I got first. I got interested in botany um, from a, a professor when I was in the second. Um, I was a um, second year in the community college. I had a botany teacher who got me really interested in plants, and so I went up to. I wanted to go to Davis, and because it was a small college at that time. And uh, I was started a major in botany, but they did not have enough botany classes to get a major there. And uh, so I took a few uh, horticulture classes to fill in, to substitute for the botany. And then I got interested because I had this wonderful professor, Olmo, who taught a class in fruit breeding. And I got really interested in fruit breeding at the, from him, through him. And, and what was that professor's name again? Harold Olmo, O-L-M-O. Yeah, it's a name that I seem to remember from the literature in different places. What kind of breeding? Oh, yeah, he was world-renowned uh, grape breeder. Okay, grape breeder. And were you... Yeah, he had to get a, a very interesting class in fruit breeding, which got me interested in breeding. So that started me on the trail. But, uh, you know, in those days, there's no jobs for women. <laughs> 
Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, did you now? Did you do additional training as a plant breeder in graduate work or other additional work? Well, I got my uh, PhD from him, and it was in cytogenetics of rubus. Okay, blackberries. Sure, sure. So, yeah, rubus being your blackberries and, and raspberries and yeah. things. Yeah, so I got my my uh, in cytogenetics from him. Oh wow! And you- then. Uh, if you'd like to work today, we could. Come, if you want to come out of retirement, we have plenty of jobs for cytogeneticists now. You really uh, back again, huh? Yeah, it kind of <laughs> went was full. Out of vogue for a while, <laughs> and it went full circle. It's actually a great technology that we really need help with in blueberries, and oh. so lots of interesting opportunities there. But, well, I'm 91 years old, so I think I'll, I'll pass. <laughs> <laughs> I am breeding a new crop, uh, a blue honeysuckle. Yeah, that's what I understand. So could you tell us a little bit more about the blue honeysuckle? Well, it's a wonderful berry. Um, I went to Japan. There, there's, a, there's several subspecies, in, in fact, all across the, the northern hemisphere. But the, uh, there are Russian varieties that were developed several years ago, and I evaluated those for a while because a local nursery was selling them. And then somebody gave me one Japanese plant. It's a different subspecies from Japan. A friend gave me this one, and I found out it bloomed a month later. So I went to Japan in 2000 and collected seeds at several different places. And that started out my breeding program. <laughs> and what are the major priorities for your breeding program? Well, large size, tasty, and productive. And, and the usual. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all the stuff you like in fruit, right? A pretty start. It's a, a marvelous berry for a to make any kind of processed product out of. The flavor is just outstanding. Yeah, I guess that was my biggest question. I don't know much about honeysuckles. Is it related to anything we'd recognize? No, Lanisera cerulea. So it's a blue honeysuckle, and that's the only honeysuckle that's edible. Okay. There's different subspecies of it. That's really cool because I'm, I know I'm very interested in uh, the domestication process and how it's been done and how what is it that's close that we could bring into our food supply, that would be something, and this seems like a great example. Well, it's a wonderful berry. Uh, they don't yield, if, compared, of course, nobody's been breeding it for, uh, only me. <laughs> uh, they don't even have a breeding program in Japan, I don't think. Uh, anyway, um, they don't yield nearly what a blueberry does, probably a fourth of what a blueberry yields. But then they've been breeding blueberries for 100 years, and there's probably hundreds of blueberry breeders in the country. Yeah, yeah. So they got a head start on you, you know. Well, quite a head start. Yeah. I'll check back with you in another hundred years. You'll have them all beat. Oh well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a marvelous berry, especially for in processed products, because it's a little tart. Oh wow! So, but that's great. So, what kind of nutrients are they really high oh, in? Oh, vitamin C and uh, oh, what are these magic things now? Um, a- antioxidants. Yeah, yeah. I am not antioxidant. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, that was just a wild guess because there's there's a lot of claims about magic things in berries. I know, I know. <laughs> there's a woman in Illinois, Mian Wong, and she did a whole big uh, analysis of the nutritional value. But that's that's great. I mean, the big thing is just getting people to eat more fruits and vegetables. You know, more variety and something new is probably pretty exciting just in and of itself. Yeah, you can't grow them in Florida though. They're from in the northern region. Yeah, they used to say that about blueberries, too. 
Oh yeah, but that would, but you have a a, a, a blueberry for, a species down there that you can use. Yes, yeah, there are some wild ones here that were yeah. the basis of that adaptation. Yeah. Well, what about other? Uh, you had mentioned that you had gone to Japan, and I guess your history says that you've done a lot of other collection, like. I was six and a half months in northern Pakistan in the mountains, and from May May until December. And what were you looking for in Pakistan? Collecting all fruits and nuts and wild and cultivated. <laughs> and what were some of the unique uh, memories you have from that kind of a oh trip? Oh, my God, it was just fantastic. I never wanted to come down. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful, beautiful country, and it's a, a sort of a combination of the Hindu Kush meets Karakorms and the, and the Himalayan. It's kind of a big high mountain there. Okay, too, is there? Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like so many of those mountainous regions have been responsible for producing so much variety within um, a, a given set of species. Or, oh, yeah. Well, the apricot was the staple food there because it always cropped. And uh, they must have brought it down from Central Asia somehow at some time when the people drifted into those mountains. I brought back 105 varieties and left them with a plant quarantine center, they managed to kill them all. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. That's a horrible, that's horrible. Well, what they did, I don't, I asked them if did they consult with a with a apricot breeder, and they said no, they they had their local horticulturist who was an apple and pear man, and uh, I think they, they they would die one after another over a few years. I think it was incompatible rootstock. And the main reason you brought them was because of maybe fruit diversity, or was it just good oh, material? Oh, fruit diversity. They were ripening between May and August. Uh, most of the kernels are sweet, and the fruit is very sweet. Was the bricks up to thirty-two? Wow! And they were late blooming. Uh, I got. I managed to get some seeds to the breeder here in California. He said all of the seedlings bloomed later than anything he had. So they're all late blooming, which was a real advantage because that's one of the limiting factors for growing apricot. Mm-hmm. Well, what were some of the other memorable uh, trips that you went on in collecting germplasm? Well, I went to um, Central Asia twice. One was on a uh, it was a, a fruit collecting trip to uh, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and uh, Tajikistan, and. Uh, uh, then I also went on a walnut collecting trip with a walnut breeder into Kyrgyzstan. You know, the English walnut is not English. It comes from Kyrgyzstan. Did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was just because of its accent. No, <laughs> no it's wild in Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> well, I'm a there walnut. There are populations of English walnut, in, <laughs> and that's where they come from. Well, what about, um, I guess... Uh, some of your real achievements were in hazelnut. Yeah, I started the hazelnut breeding program here in '69, and the, uh, my successor has been t- uh, putting out beautiful varieties now. You know, I, that's '69, '70, 45 years later. It's pretty amazing when you look at the speed of tree breeding, though. That's still that's really good. 45 years yeah. seems it's pretty reasonable. Yeah, one of my selections was used as a grandparent of one of his patented varieties, so I'm getting a part of the royalty. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really good. 
Yeah. It seems like there's more demand for hazelnuts than ever before. Oh, well, because we've, we're producing them. We're, we're selling kernels now. When I came on here, they were... They had a big nut with a thick shell, and they sold them all before Christmas for Christmas nut bowls in shell nuts. Well, it also seems like a lot of uh, spreads and other types of processing. Is that part of the hazelnut program also in terms of... Oh, yeah, they're developing a lot of new... Mainly, they're selling kernels now, which is what the industry wants. And when you are starting with hazelnut material that you collected, um, where did that come from? Well, there was a big collection here. My, my uh, predecessor had collected from Europe. And so I went through that and made crosses with what I had then. But my uh, the, uh, successor, Sean Millenbacher, he's been all over the world collecting more and finding more sources of disease resistance than we had here. And is that the major problem, is disease resistance? or are there Well, there was a, a eastern filbert blight, which came in, got into Oregon about the time I retired. <laughs> <laughs> and I found one variety that was resistant. It's a single gene, and he's been using that. But he's gone around the world and collected his several sources of resistance now. What are some of the other traits that are uh, that are that breeders look at in breeding something like hazelnut? Well, we wanted a, a thinner shell, so there's a higher proportion of kernel, a round shape because that's what hazelnuts are supposed to be round. <laughs> and uh, let's see. Uh, easily blanched, which means you put them in the oven and the skin falls off, so you have a nice white blanched nut. Mm-hmm. And what else? Oh, production. A smaller tree and higher production. And he succeeded in all these. Uh, he's got some really good variety. They're planting them all over Oregon now. Yeah, I know Sean, and I know he's made a, a tremendous amount of headway in the program. And Oh, it's been fantastic. Yeah. When I talked to Chad, I spoke with Chad, and he said, oh, you ha- you have to talk to Maxine Thompson, because she was the one who started the program, really get well, really got the program rolling back in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, a, it's kind of a theme of this entire show that I do, is really just about reminding us about how we stand on the shoulders of giants, and how today our progress was really predicated upon tremendous efforts from people at other times. So, well, yeah. So, well, when I started, there was nothing really very good to work with. But I finally got a cross. It was a cross with one of the Turkish ones, uh, with our, our, our native one, or our, our domestic one. And I got a really good one. But the trouble is the husk stayed on. It fell with the husk on. And you want them to, to fall free of the husk. See, they, they, they let the nuts fall on the ground, and then they sweep them up and pick them up with a machine. I see. And you don't want the husk with them. So when and anyway, the, the, the good selection, I had a beautiful kernel, thin shell, but it had a husk. And he used that in successive crosses and, and came up with some pat, a patented variety. That's the other um, real question that I always have as a person who thinks about plant genetics is how long does it take between generations with something like hazelnut? Well, it's about, you can, probably about five years. Okay, so if you really can push them, you can get about five years. Well, you know, they, you, know, you make the cross, and then you wait a year to get the seed, and, and then, you know, about the fourth or fifth year, they'll start to bear, but they'll show, you know, if they're going to be good bearers. Is- say four to five years at the minimum. It's always amazing to me, and with my hat's off to tree breeders. <laughs> 
Yeah. When I retired, I didn't want to breed trees, but I still wanted to breed. So I said, I want something that's shorter-lived and easy to propagate <laughs> and doesn't take so long, doesn't take so much space. <laughs> so I got this berry now I'm working with him. Well, earlier in the uh, discussion, you had talked about the idea that when you came out of school with your Ph.D., it was difficult to find a job, mostly because breeders, it was, a, it was mostly a, a male-dominated field. And could you tell us a little bit more about that, about how difficult it was and how you found a position? Oh, yeah. Well, I couldn't possibly get a job at that time. I had a Ph.D. in genetics and breeding, and uh, I would apply places. They say, no, we want a man. In fact, right here at Oregon, the reason I got up to Oregon is uh, because of my knowledge of chromosome counting. My uh, my predecessor had a grant to study a pyrus, the pear species, and he had a big pear species collection. He wanted the chromosomes counted, which I could do easily. So I came up here for that for one year on his grant money, and then he went on sabbatic leave, and so I got to fill his position because I had all the qualifications. So I was there for a year. Then he came back, and the next year he dropped dead of a heart attack. Yeah. <laughs> and so... The head of the department asked if I wanted to come over and, and take his position. That is the only way. I was the first woman ever hired. I think I was the second only. There was a one other woman in the whole School of Agriculture, and they hired me. Wow. And I got through the back door. Well, if, if you don't mind me asking, about what year was that? I came here in six, uh, so I came to Corvallis in 65, about 68. I got hired the first time. Wow, that's pretty amazing because I think that we find it um, not really hard to believe that such things would happen, you know, years ago. 60s doesn't seem that long ago, and it's sad that it still happens in some places today. Well, yeah. Well, I, I well, when I was working with a pair for that grant on the grant money, uh, the job for uh, the berry breeding job, Chad's job, was open here. They couldn't find anybody. It was a berry breeding job, mm-hmm. USDA. Uh, I applied for it, and the guy in, I interviewed me said, well, you certainly have the qualifications, but we're looking for a man. And I had all my degrees were in genetics, and I had a glowing letter of recommendation from my professor, my major professor. But we're looking for a man. It's amazing that they would come right out and say that. Well, he did. <laughs> there was no problem then. It's it's really it's it's really amazing. I mean, it shows that we've made some progress. But if you watch oh the news, God. well, we still got a ways to go. Well, in 1972, I went to the American Society for Horticulture Science meetings in St. Paul, Minnesota. I arrived at the registration desk, and the lady said, "You must be Maxine Thompson." And how do you know? The other woman has arrived. She was a Chinese <laughs> woman from Taiwan. <laughs> Well, I'm not kidding. No, I, I I believe it. That's pretty amazing, kidding. and and that's relatively recent times. Seventy about seventy two, I think it was there. Yeah, that's uh, you know that's within my lifetime. I mean, you know, I'm 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 fifty well, years 40 old. Forty some years. Time goes by. <laughs> yeah, no, it moves quick. Yeah, I yeah, was yeah. I was I was. Well, in, it's been a dramatic change. Now, uh, at Oregon State, there are forty four percent female professors or assistant professors. 46% graduate students, female. 
That's really encouraging. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. Well, now you, a woman can expect to get a job. I never expected to get First job I got was out of my degree, after my degree, was actually a teaching job in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, teaching general botany and psychology. Wow. Was that, was that at a university? At the university? No, at Oshkosh State College. They, I, I got hired in uh, mid-August, and I have a feeling they already had somebody who canceled out the last minute. They were desperate. Yeah, but then so they but, took me. But you did end up getting back to Oregon or getting to I Oregon. I came back, boy. I'll tell you. After being raised in California, you don't want to go to Wisconsin. <laughs> Wisconsin always has had an interesting place for me because I like the cheese and the fishing. <laughs> they go out and fish through the ice, you know. There. Oh, I know. I used to do that. I was really oh good at God. it. I used to. I used to sit on a bucket all day and pull fish through oh, the through all. I thought that was the funniest. <laughs> Well, you were out there by Oshkosh on uh, Lake Winnebago, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So that was pretty cool. You mentioned that um, the other issues with with being hired, and you know, what's really encouraging is when you look in our plant biology departments across the nation, and even in biology, molecular biology, you do see that there is much more of a fifty fifty representation of male and female, probably better than ever. Oh yeah, how about in Florida? Oh, we're doing really well. I think we have about 50-50 males and females. And what's really encouraging about that is that that's not engineered or manufactured to be that way. That we just uh-huh. have been we've been casting a wide net and interviewing good. many people and just hire the best person. And half the good. time it's him, half the time it's her. Oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Mm-hmm. See, I, I was asked to write an editorial for the uh, horticulture uh, magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, about women in horticulture, and I made a survey of all the um, land-grant universities, and uh, I've forgotten how many women were faculty members. Practically no, I think. I wrote an article, but I haven't read it for, you know, 40, 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's time to dig that one out. Yeah, well, I know. It was practically none. Yeah, I, I got a response from, I don't know, about 60% probably. Well, here's a good question. Do you think that fruits and vegetables today would taste better if more women were the breeders? Oh, no, I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think there's any difference in that. (laughs) I just always ask because it seems like in a male-dominated breeding world, um, maybe that men had different expectations and different priorities for what they would get from fruits and vegetables. I don't think so. No, okay. I have no idea. <laughs> well, if you had good advice for, um, let's say, young women today who were thinking about careers in plant breeding, what would you tell them? Well, I just tell them it's a fascinating thing. Uh, I know one of my uh, my vegetable breeder friend. He said that their faculty was uh, urging for a, they wanted a raise. You know, they weren't paid. The School of Agriculture was paid less than other schools, so they were trying to get a raise. And my friend, who's a vegetable breeder, said, I don't know why they pay me as much as they do, because I like to, like to do it so much. And I felt just the same way. <laughs> I love doing it. I love to go to work and do my breeding work. Well, I, I share your sentiments. I told my boss, you know, you don't even have to pay me to do this. And it's just because I, you know, it's th- we are very fortunate to be able to be part of uh, such a great system. And the land-grant university system is a wonderful place to have a career and really be able to feel relevance and impact in what you do. It is, really. And there's no sexual harassment. 
Yeah, well, it seems pretty. Yeah, it seems to be the major uh, problem today. But it it seems pretty good here. Well, I never had any. I was the only woman with all these men, and I never had a single sexual innuendo of any kind. <laughs> well, that's good. No one's ever harassed me either. But that's that's it's <laughs> because I'm you know yeah long story, but. Um, it, it is a it is a really good environment, and I think it's because of the, the the folks that you're surrounded with tend not to be of those types of stripes who would uh, be thinking that way. So that's good. No, I know. Yeah, I, I always got along very well with all my colleagues, and I never felt any I never felt any kind of put down. And also the farmers, they I would go out to a farm, and they always talk a leg off me, and they always supported my research with their money. So I didn't. I never felt any problem being a woman, even though I was the only one. Well, once you got in, right? Then it was. Yeah, th- it was getting in. It was a problem. Yeah, so maybe that's a good lesson for us right now: is that we need to be in our searches and in our in our. Uh, whether we're looking for students or for faculty, and it doesn't yeah. matter across sciences, that maybe it's a question of just making sure people can get their foot in the door. Yeah. And, because once that happens, the the good yeah. science takes over. Yeah, right. I mean, it's really great now that there's opportunities for young women. Well, so far, there uh, we have lots of them in our program. I think we're probably much more female-weighted as well, probably 60-40. Really? You mean the graduate students? I think so. I think in graduate students, it's probably that ratio. Yeah, it's pretty—I looked it up. It was 46%, I think, here. The faculty was 44%. Well, if you had to do this again, what do you think would be the biggest change? You mean today? Yeah, like if you got if if we had to start being a plant breeder all over again today, and uh, say say even going to college again, what do you think would be some of your biggest changes that you would do differently from the way you did them, or would you do it all the same? Well, I don't know. I I, I can't think of anything. Well, you know, uh, when I went to college, there was no tuition. Yeah. University of California had no tuition. Wow, what a deal! Yeah. So I worked my way through college. Oh, they had no tuition. Like they wouldn't. They wouldn't. No tuition. They wouldn't pay your tuition. So you had to cover your own bills. Yeah. Well, I usually got a research assistantship. I see. I see. You so, know, which it allows you to to live. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's what we still do. Those here. Sure. Yeah, but no tuition. Well, what do you think is next for you? I mean, you said that you're working on breeding now, and and when do you expect your products may find the market? Well, I've already I've well I've patented nine varieties, and uh, Spring Meadow Nursery in Michigan is selling four of them. Oh, very good. And and, uh, and there's a couple of nurseries in Canada. I can't I'm not a promoter. You know, I've called some of these big nurseries and told them about, it, but they don't. If they know it at all, they know the Russian wind, and they know it. They're just nothing, no, not worth it. I can't get people like Stark Nursery and Monrovia Nursery and Bailey Nursery. They say, "Well, that's interesting. Goodbye." Yeah, they won't. They don't want them. Yeah, it's really funny because the irony is, as soon as it starts to catch on and you get the right traction, they're going to want them all the time. Yeah, <laughs> but Spring Meadow is—they—they've been selling. They think they sold nine thousand plants this year. So maybe you could tell, maybe you could just mention, so this is at Spring Meadow Nursery in, in Michigan. And, yeah. And, and what are the varieties called that you have there? Well, do you want the names? Oh, sure. 
Well, they put their own names on them. Oh. Okay. <laughs> well, I just mentioned this because we have about 6,000 people that listen every every week. Oh. And, well, uh, Spring Meadow Nursery, they have four of my varieties right now. One is called Maxi. One thing, maybe after my name, also it's a big fruit. And the other one's called Solo because it sets some fruit with its own pollen. Most of the plants are self-incompatible. And then they, <laughs> what's the other one? I don't I hate these names. Honey Butts and Sweetie Pie. <laughs> <laughs> I call them Hoka and Kaido because they came from Hokkaido. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, should... they changed, they put their own names on them. It's they seem... think they're more appealing. Now, it seems like the inventor should be deciding that. It, it doesn't matter. I don't care as long as they sell them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, marketing is a big part of that, and and that's well, yeah. That's what's See, so. I'm not a marketer, and I'm not a promoter, and I just uh, see Spring Meadow came and saw them, and the nursery in, in in British Columbia came and saw them, and they took them. They were really pleased with them, but I can't get any. I, I'm not. A, I can't get people. I don't know how to get it out to the other nurseries. Yeah, well, one of the things that is really magical about modern media like this podcast is the number of people we reach that are very interested in these kinds of things and so you may find you get a little bump in terms of you know maybe some folks in the northern climates will find you know the an interest and maybe they'll contact the the nursery so i would encourage people you know maybe try to get something started it's an interesting yeah, kind i'm not of fruit. selling plants because i'm i'm just a breeder but spring meadow nursery is selling them and a couple of nurseries in bc british columbia are selling them but I don't know if they're selling them to the United States or not. I see. Yeah, but what we can do is I can provide a link in the podcast episode with the website associated with this that links to your varieties. And if people are interested in putting some new plants or maybe coming up with some gifts for others, that would be a really um, conscientious way to uh, p- introduce people to new flavorful fruit and maybe be able to uh, help a good cause, too. So that's great. Uh-oh. I I sent some plants to a guy in in Ohio, and he had, I think, uh, 60 or 80 plants. And he was selling the fresh fruit at the farmer's market for $4 for a half pint. (laughs) Well, that's, you know, that's really encouraging. So, Well, I mean, it was great. Now, he died, unfortunately, and his neighbor is also growing some of the plants, and he's making a, a wine out of it. Okay, so there's a, so there's lots of applications of this particular fruit, and uh, maybe some profits for small uh, smallholder farms, farmers markets, things like that. Yeah, and uh, um, there, it makes a wonderful liqueur. There's an outfit in Portland, Oregon. It's just fantastic. A liqueur, really great. Wow. So, do you know the name of that organization? Brand Brandy Works, I think. Brandy Works. Okay. Some, I, I'm not exactly sure because. A friend of mine who's growing some of the berries provides the berries to them. And one lady had some, a few of my berries. She, had, she got a prize at the state uh, state fair for the best jam. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> so you're breeding outstanding products that are uh, gaining a lot of interest. That sounds really exciting. Well, a little bit here and there, but not enough to, you know, most people never heard of it. Well, that's uh, that's partially our problem as uh, two problems. The consumer that has a very n- narrow definition and kind of an unwillingness to try something new. But I think that's changing. I think a lot of younger people are excited about new kinds of berries. 
Well, it, it's uh, it's called Haskap, H-A-S-K-A-P. Yeah, Haskap. Now, that's the, the Japanese name for them, and that's why I used it uh, to differentiate it from the, the Russian blue honeysuckle, which is called honeyberries. Yeah, so calling this Haskap berries, or Haskap. H-A-S-K-A-P. Yeah, so... Haskap. Hoskop. Okay, so that's really good to know. So I'll uh, we'll promote this a little bit here and see what happens. Because wouldn't it be fun if there was a new interesting kind of berry that people got excited about? I mean, I mean they like kale. They like what? Kale. And that's awful. Kale. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Oh, you like it? Okay. Well, there's I'm growing some. <laughs> there's there's one person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't want to keep right on just plain old plant breeding. I love it. <laughs> no, I, I hear you. I think it's a it's a, it's an excellent discipline, and it's really nice to talk to one of the uh, one of the experts and someone who's been there through quite a bit of its history. Dr. Maxine Thompson, thank you so much for spending some time and talking to me today about you know your career and you know you're one of the one of the heroes of plant breeding. And thank you very yeah. much for your time today. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Yeah, bye. bye. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.